0: In the last episode of The Digital Dark Age, my guest Dag Spicer, senior curator of the Computer History Museum in Mountain View, California, introduced the idea of an approaching digital dark age, in which both our personal as well as our civilization's most critical knowledge is at risk due to digital technology itself. In this episode, part two, Dag and I explore possible solutions to this significant challenge. From this point, I wanted to jump to look at some potential ways of addressing This this problem that's on the horizon, and and you correctly pointed out. I mean, I think I've got I've got boxes of zip drives uh, again in my office here. You know, which I thought was when I remember when the technology came along. Boy, this is the greatest thing going. Getting away from those floppy disks, and and now you know, as you say, there's no way to read any of that. I don't know if I miss a lot of it. There are things though that I know I have, which I would love to find, but I can't (laughs) because it's on an old medium. I just have no way to access. It. So it is a problem. So how can we solve this problem? I mean, is is there a way, um, is it, a, is it an approach to sort of updating data so that it can constantly be read by new hardware? Is that a potential solution?
1: Yes, that, that certainly is. Uh, keep migrating it to the current storage technology. Uh, that requires some effort, maybe a bit of technical ability that, maybe the general population isn't quite so comfortable with Uh, you know 10 when I spoke in that New York Times article I I think maybe forget when that was done but at the time I mentioned you know I I I didn't recommend people store their images in the what was just beginning to be called the the cloud at the time and actually now I'm on I've switched I actually think the cloud is—they figured it out, and it's fine. It's reliable, and that would be a decent way for you to um, use uh, as a backup to all your content. Now, the value of keeping these things to you know your personal life, I think, is a is a very deeply personal decision. Some people are sort of more Zen and uh, don't really, you know, they practice non-attachment in the in all its uh, manifestations. <laughs> And they're they're just they they really don't find it uh, very interesting or worth preserving. Other people uh, just you know think, wow, this is a real part of my life. Like all of my college years are on these zip disks, for example. Wouldn't it be nice if I could sort of relive those years? Maybe you know when I'm retired or whatever, <laughs> whatever, feel like looking looking back, getting a little nostalgic. Um, the thing to do, I think, is in the case of your zip disks and people who have similar disks, is if you can try to try to do the conversion yourself. It'll cost you a lot less. You can go on eBay and buy an old zip drive, for example, uh, and try that. It's not. It's it may be more complicated than that. I don't want to make it sound like it's all that easy. Uh, the other thing that I've been using um, personally is uh, Costco. Or things like eight millimeter movies that my grandparents made in the early 1960s. They will transfer that to you on a, into a digital MP4 for fifteen dollars. Wow, I didn't know that's that. pretty hard to beat. Mm-hmm. And uh, and there, now you've solved the problem. And by the way, film it lasts a really long time, long much, time. much, yeah, much longer than any of
0: these magnetic. Or optical media. Well, it is fascinating because I do see some counter trends in, in, you know, in hardware, and I certainly see it with my own kids. You know, they've gone back to buying records, um, and records are now the, the quality of the record is certainly much better than it was when the the record industry, you know, sort of disintegrated years ago uh, when they were putting things in very cheap plastic that didn't last very long. Now, of course, the quality is very, very good, and both of my kids are now collecting albums. And they've gone back to cds and they you know still prefer to read using a real book as opposed to reading online so there's i think these countercultures may may actually help to balance things out a little bit or make sure that some of this old hardware hangs around
1: (laughs) absolutely yeah there is a vigorous uh, vintage computing community uh, all across north america just lots of people who are really into it and you know it takes about, I think they say it takes 25 years for a car to become a so-called classic. And in a sense, it's the same thing is happening with computers, like the computers that came out in the early 80s and that are late 70s that a lot of people of a certain age, maybe they're in their 50s now, uh, have the time and resources to indulge those hobbies more than they might have before. And uh, as a consequence, the the uh, strength of a community for personal computers from basically the mid seventies onwards is extremely strong, but you can get, you can get help converting almost anything. I would think um, almost any format if you just go to the right forum.
0: Yeah. It's a, it's, it is an interesting counter trend. I wanted to ask you some questions about, you know, again, on this larger, the larger context of the digital dark age, is there a role for government here? In other words, should government, um, mandate tech companies to open up their proprietary file formats. For example, you mentioned Bill Gates and Microsoft, so the .doc um, uh, file format is owned by Microsoft and the .pdf format is owned by Adobe. Is is it reasonable for government to mandate that these become open and therefore continually supported um, as the new hardware changes?
1: I think it is. For example, I'm thinking of the Sar- Sarbanes-Oxley Act, which in mm-hmm. the United States requires companies to maintain the last five years of all their records. So that was a real boon for for hard drives manufacturers. <laughs> uh, but uh, so the government's necessity, uh, the government's uh, mandating that documents be preserved, I believe invoked a uh, a movement to create a pdf standard that would be valid for all of those uh, for the for for the foreseeable future that's the thing no one can predict the future but the portable document format the pdf done run by adobe there's there's a couple of versions uh more than a couple which are made for special applications there's one for archives there's but you know essentially it can be read with pretty high confidence even going into the future the doc the doc format old word files there are often converters even online that can take you pretty far back like it's um even the current version of word will read word 97 files <clears throat> without any without any issue so um, when you get into word 1.0 and that starts to get a little complicated.
0: I saw something, I read another article, which sort of fascinated me, but also scared me a little bit. Was there also thinking about using DNA as a storage medium? Can you talk about that?
1: So uh, DNA is actually a a method of storing genetic information already. And so with the the four letters that make up DNA, you can, uh, A-G-T-C, you can come up with, I think it's 18 or 20 amino acids that are actually used and by combining them uh, you can basically relay any kind of information i don't think of restoring any kind of information don't think uh, the reading and writing of this approach is very easy or scalable i think it's really kind of a a lab bench curiosity at this point Uh, but you raise an interesting point, which is that we've almost come to the end of Moore's Law.
0: Moore's Law is an observation made in 1965 by Gordon Moore, co founder of Intel, that the number of transistors per square inch on integrated circuits had doubled every year since the integrated circuit was invented. Moore predicted that this trend would continue for the foreseeable future. Most experts, including Moore himself, expect Moore's law to hold true until somewhere between 2020 and 2025.
1: We're just basically unable to squeeze more transistors into the same space as we are. Probably within the next year or two, Moore's law will officially top out. And that's why people are looking at things like DNA, uh, different chemical molecules, uh, quantum solutions, uh, all these court kind of really far out and left field technologies that may come into the mainstream at some point, if Moore's law stops, uh, you know, runs out of gas. The thing is though, for many people, we don't really need more powerful computers. Uh, you know, a laptop probably topped out in terms of the performance we needed five or 10 years ago for most people. Like, uh. But for things like high-performance computing, where you're, you know, these computers uh, cost, there's one in Japan that cost a billion dollars, and it's actually the fastest computer in the world. And that is based on on millions of microprocessor chips all running uh, together
0: at the same time. Yeah, and then there's, of course, the little nefarious side of the uh, computer business, software business, where um, in order to encourage you to buy and upgrade your hardware device, and um, even though you don't need it, is that uh, it, it, the uh, new programs start to run much more slowly on the old device. Um, and there have been a number of lawsuits around that, as you know. Oh, interesting.
1: Well, there used there used to be a saying that uh, what Andy giveth, Bill taketh away. <laughs> Andy Grove of Intel, the guy who makes mm. the chips, the hardware. And Bill Gates, the software, so the the notion is that Intel gives you the hardware, but then Microsoft just absorbs it all all the extra power with its software
0: yeah it's it's well it 's a fascinating thing, so I wanted to read you something that I also found. Out. I have not read this book, but it is now on my list. Um, And it's a little provocative. It's by a gentleman by the name of James uh, Brittle. I think that's how he pronounces it. And he says, as the world around us increases in technological complexity, our understanding of it diminishes. Underlying this trend is a single idea. The belief that our existence is understandable through computation and more data is enough to help us build a better world. What do you think of that? Uh,
1: I think that is uh, what you might call a strong AI position, which is um, a group of AI practitioners who, inspired by neuroscience, believe uh, that thought is a form of computation, and they point to things like uh, Deep Blue from IBM, which defeated Gary Kasparov in '97 in a famous chess match, and um, you know to the extent that chess is considered a form of an or a proxy for intelligence which it kind of is in the popular imagination uh, you know most people think oh chess that's hard you have to be smart to play chess uh, that's kind of the you know the reigning understanding that people have and for the for deep blue to uh defeat Garry Kasparov. It essentially used a brute force approach, which was that it could look, perform 200 million calculations per second and essentially look 20 or 30 moves ahead. Um, And what's amazing is not that uh, the computer beat Kasparov, it actually ended in a draw, uh, but that Kasparov could even compete with a machine like that uh, and using a completely different form of intelligence which is one based on pattern matching and knowledge of historical games, rather than working your way through a tree of possible uh, moves and counter moves. Now, Deep Blue also looked at historical games, so it's, you know, it did have some insight from history as well. But uh, it's pretty remarkable that, um, that I think the, the, the basic idea now is that thought is not really calculation um but the calculation is involved in some of the mechanisms of thinking so uh let me see if i can give an example okay so like the vision the human visual system is basically an extent an extension of the brain it's it's basically like your brain being pulled out right out to the, the outside world and uh there's a gigantic amount of processing that occurs between the optic nerve at the back and before it gets to the brain, and that is done all that all that calculation is done using essentially neural networks. Mm-hmm. And you can you know whether you call that calculation or not, I don't think you really. I don't I'm not sure it's a form of calculation. Uh, so I guess my long-winded answer to that question is. I don't think thinking is a form of calculation. Uh, calculation may be involved in certain of its processes, but thinking is something way beyond just uh, the brain you know, computing things. I think at the yeah. level of, of the uh, material world, like the basic sensory inputs, that might be more accurate. Like the, the brain is kind of a sensory processing machine. And in that sense, that's where the computation occurs. But as far as higher-order thinking and stuff, that's not computation.
0: Right. Well, I think Bridal's, uh, I I just saw his book, and I guess it's been been quite well-reviewed, and it's called The New Dark Age. Um, And so I, I have it on my list. I will pick it up and read it so I'm more informed on that. Um, well, it's interesting. It's, it's just a different, you know, perspective, and I, I think it's a perspective or a concern that's probably been raised by a lot of people. I mean, are we, are we becoming way too dependent, um, you know, on the digital world, on uh, you know, information communication technologies um, to preserve our future? Because, of course, as you mentioned, you know, in the past and certainly. Indigenous ways of knowing, you know, really are about storytelling and passing along the history through the stories to each generation, and we've done this successfully as human beings without advanced technology, um, and that's happened in many different cultures. Uh, so it, it's um, it is a question that I think a lot of people are asking themselves, maybe these days more than more than ever. But I, you know, I I, I noticed that Vin's surface is proposing uh solution and what does he call it the uh, um it's vellum digital vellum right what is that exactly
1: i think it's essentially kind of a you know just an electronic format and yet another one uh, but i I actually i'm not 100 percent sure so i probably should not comment on it
0: i i thought it had something to do with x-rays but taking x-rays and preserving the x-rays all you know and using much like a negative i guess for for um uh, you know in traditional film because as you say it's easier that that seems to last longer and it's easier to pull copies from um, you know, old negatives, I guess, in the same analogy, if, you know, if you have those old negatives and certainly I have lots of old negatives, um, you know, and I guess you could just keep pulling that data from those old negatives and keep the negatives.
1: Right. Well, you know, another thing is um, I have been asked a few times by various media just like, well, what do you recommend people who have documents? How do you think they should handle you know, they want that document to be around 100 years from now. I said, well, print it out on acid-free paper and put it in a safety deposit box.
0: <laughs> that's, well, that's that's true, because, of course, what I've noticed, the degradation, especially for those of us that use the inkjet printers, uh, the degradation is very rapid. Um, you know, pictures that have been printed out using photo paper and, and, and inkjet printers, uh, they, you know, if you leave them in the sun, any kind of exposure to light, and they fade and eventually go away.
1: Yeah, yeah, for sure all that stuff you know the whole computer industry's got like a five-year time horizon if not less that's kind of it kind of it it's uh you know method of planned obsolescence it it actually wants wants you to throw out your computer every five years
0: yeah and there's no doubt and i think we're you know we may see an acceleration of that i think that's um and so that again brings attention to this whole notion of the digital dark ages that things are moving so quickly and technology is advancing so rapidly that what we think we're on top of now is, uh, you know, tomorrow we may be completely out of the loop, so to speak. Um, it, it's, it's, a bit, it's a bit frightening. I used to think that I was, you know, sort of at the cutting edge of technology for years, and now I find I am so far behind, I can't keep, it, keep up with everything. Um, it's, it's, it's very challenging. I have another, I want to jump forward a little bit and ask you about something which I think is related to this, right? I'd like to get your perspective on whether you believe it is, but um, the Canadian government is pursuing this idea of creating uh, a digital I- identification framework. Uh, a digital wallet of sorts that maintains all your personal information, your driver's license, your healthcare number, your social security number, um, and that would ensure that. The protection of that data is, I think, is the driver. But I also wondered, in Canada where you know, as you are quite aware, it's pretty advanced in this area. We were early adopters of debit cards, and the first machine I ever saw that could, you know, take your uh, take your order where you could pay at the table. I saw in Toronto over twenty years ago. Um, so we were advanced in this. So there's a big proposal to do this. We've set up a, um, a government commission, I believe it is, on this. And Quebec has already started the process. So they actually have it in place right now. It's minimal amount of data is being held. But I wonder if this is a partial solution to the digital dark age. So in other words, if we have all of people's personal information accessible, um, then we can use that to cross-reference Um, against their experiences, the things that they've written, the things that they've talked about, like this podcast, that there's a a point of reference there. And then to extend that a little bit further, what if we were to extend that whole idea of the digital ID framework to include um, things that we write, things that we think about, things that we talk about? What do you think of that idea?
1: Well, there's a... Former chief scientist at IBM named Grady Booch, who thought, uh, used to li- like to think about memory technologies that where your entire life, everything you ever did, wrote, thought, you know, in, in material culture terms, could be preserved in a, something the size of a sugar cube.
0: Grady Booch is the chief scientist for software engineering at IBM Research, where he leads IBM's research and development on embodied cognition. Having originated the term and practice of object-oriented design, he is best known for his work in advancing the fields of software engineering and software architecture. He is a co-author of the Unified Modeling Language. Grady is currently developing a major transmedia documentary for public broadcast on the intersection of computing and the human experience, called Computing.
1: I think his idea was that... um when storage is essentially free there's almost no no real boundaries to to using it and you know to coming up with new ways of, of storing information i'm not quite sure the digital id which i know has been deployed mostly successfully in india recently they had hmm. a, a fantastic uh, fantastically complex method a uh, system as you can imagine and you know, a lot of cultural factors too. A lot of people, as you can imagine, in the United States as well, with the whole don't tread on me kind of philosophy, don't don't cotton to being, to having a kind of federal ID. Uh, they don't like the idea of that. But putting that aside, I think it's a good idea for personal ID, but I'm not sure if you, you're thinking you would, you would put like, personal things you've done like family photo albums would be on this card and that kind of thing
0: well they could be i mean i i don't think i certainly that's not the way the government is going but i but i think what they are creating is a permanent record of you of each individual canadian which then could be cross-referenced my was just my thinking blue sky thinking and wondering whether you know the digital wallet concept is is a the same side of idea, sort of idea where why couldn't you put your own personal information? Why couldn't you put um, things that you've written, um, things, photographs that you've taken, that content? Why couldn't you extend that in that sort of analogy of the digital wallet? But I like the idea, of course, because in, you know within the government context, of course, that's going to be preserved and protected. Um, And at no cost to you, um, I'm assuming, but, you know, and the idea behind it is they're saying, well, this is a, and they're really moving, I think moving fairly quickly on it right now because of the pandemic, because this is kind of the ideal time to do it. Um, and they're saying it's going to be much safer because instead of handing over your license or carrying it around in your wallet or your health card where you're susceptible to fraud, where you can lose your wallet and people can take it and sell it on the dark web, um, you know, this is now all contained and, and it's, no one actually sees it. It just references as when you go in to do something that does require some government ID or government information or information about you. It just automatically gets the information, but doesn't show it to the, you know, the person at the counter. There's no physical card? No.
1: Ah, okay. Because another thing, you know, I did think one source of data that would be useful, but again, well, yeah, I guess you don't need a card, is your EMR, your electronic medical record. Um hmm that actually could be very useful. It could save your life, actually, if you were right. potentially in a different country or something and, you know, you had all your whole medical file there with you, that would be really useful, potentially.
0: Yeah, and I think it was amazing. The way I've, at least that I the reading I've done around it, is that it's a way to actually track who's accessing your data. Um, so it's somewhat safer, too. So you know that, oh, well, you know, the Canada Revenue Agency just accessed your social insurance number. So you get a little report, yeah, I don't know how it's going to work. I know it's all being done through the you know through your cell phone. Um, so I'm not but I'm not sure how you actually know specifically uh, maybe it's like a, like a credit rating when you have to you know contact somebody and and have them supply you with that rig. So I guess you can some way go back and say who's accessed this information.
1: Yeah, that's a good aspect of uh, any good privacy policy is to know who's looking at you. It's good,
0: yeah. So I think that's fascinating. I wanted just to kind of, we're getting close to the end of our, our session here, but I wanted to talk a little bit more about cloud computing and software as a service. So you mentioned the cloud and how and you've come around to believe in the cloud is a good uh, solution to protecting and storing data. Um, You know, I I think I'm nervous about the cloud a little bit because, and I use, you know, but there seems to be various, I don't know if there's one cloud or the cloud is separated into into various partitions. But, you know, of course, I'm an Apple user, so I use my cloud. Um, You know, I use uh, Dropbox. Um, You know, all of these are cloud storage devices. Um, And then, of course, there are things that, um, look, I use SurveyMonkey quite a bit in my work. So I have, you know, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of responses to surveys as well as the surveys themselves. Um, I use a whole bunch of cloud storage. But my biggest concern is, you know, if these companies go away, what happens to all of that data that sits in their cloud? And what kind of regulations are in place, if any, to ensure that if Apple, you know, no longer exists, What do they have to do with all the information that's sitting in their cloud?
1: So it's a gray area. Uh, The tech company, no one is really regulating this market um, because the the law is just too far behind the technology. There's new technologies, whether it's Amazon Web Services or or OneDrive or Dropbox, whatever. Um, They, uh, you know, if you really are paranoid about one of them, I can suggest that you use two of them <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. if you, I mean, if you really need a high level of, you know, critical financial records or whatever they are um, something that absolutely cannot ever get lost cloud, two clouds, cloud plus local storage, put it on it. You know, again, this idea of lots of copies, keeps stuff safe. Right. Is, is probably a better solution than trying to design or conceive of some, you know, ominously powerful all <laughs> inviolable uh, thing which doesn't exist anyway uh, you know there's no such thing as a perfect storage
0: system no you know and that again go into software as a service I mean it's a trend I know that's out there and has been for a while I personally don't love it um, you know for a variety of reasons but one is again because uh, you know all of my documentation is being stored and connected Really, to the hard well, the hardware or the software. I guess it depends. Um, and I, you know, I find that I would much rather have this software program sitting on my local uh, drive or on my computer rather than accessing it via the web. Um, you know, I, I, am not comfortable about the level of security. And as I say, I mean, you know, you're, you're paying for the service, you're not paying for the software. (laughs) And, and I think to me that increase, increases the risk of data loss. Um, if I have my own machine, I can do a lot of the things that you, you know, we've discussed in this show, but you know, looking after my own storage and things like that, I can keep as I. Typically, do I have a whole bunch of old computers and old laptops and and different types of drives and things? But I, I control all that. But with the software as a service, where everything is going up to the cloud um, and sitting there, and you're using, you're pulling it down when you use the software. Does that create a, a bigger element of risk of of data loss and and you know the you know accelerating us towards this digital dark age?
1: So it's actually, I think you you expressed what's essentially a kind of a personal preference for people, (laughs) whether they feel comfortable with the whole notion of this sort of different entity storing everything that's important to them. (laughs) Now, um, the chances are, technically speaking, greater that your own hard drive will fail than the cloud will fail because they have massive amounts of redundancy. Like your one Word doc, could be on eight different servers, so, you know, in in Hong Kong, in Chicago, you know, the bits of it uh, spread or, you know, copies of it spread all over the place. So the, the chances of them losing, their, you know, a document is almost nil. It's, it's not zero, but it, it's pretty close. Uh, and then if you do the, comp- but I know what you mean psychologically. Uh, having physical access to the to devices gives you a pretty high comfort factor that you don't get when you're just sort of sending bits off into the cloud. And then, you know, for I have um, just personal story, I, I find it difficult to work on Google Docs, for example, because one time I was working on a document and someone else started changing words in a paragraph, two paragraphs above that I had just changed. And I went like, is this really what life is gonna be like now?
0: (laughs) This collaborative Mm -hmm. document
1: Mm -hmm. creation because I don't like it. Uh, (laughs) And uh, so, you know, it's not perfect. And uh, you know, the the new modes of working that it enables uh, things like, you know, cloud-based software as a service, like you say, which just means that it's like a a centrally managed subscription-based
0: software service that they provide you and force you to pay for and if you stop paying you lose access to your data
1: well i guess that is the case that would make sense yeah but you would have the opportunity to, to get it off the thing is with companies um there's a device that amazon web services sends you called the snowball which is actually this little box it's about the size of two microwave ovens and it it has some humongous amount of storage like 100 terabytes or something and they actually ship it to you and you put all your stuff on this drive locally and then ship it back to them and they connect it to the cloud because if you had to update all your content to the cloud it would take you you know 50 years literally uh and so there's a notion that once you are on the cloud as well it may be hard to disentangle depending on how much of your information you have up there if it's gigantic like hundreds and hundreds of terabytes or you know petabytes even mm-hmm. um it's going to be a really expensive task to get that stuff down and by the way amazon uh, charges you not only to store it but to pull the data back down again it was actually a famous case at nasa where nasa a nasa um, research center paid for cloud storage for you know hundreds of petabytes of information from a satellite but forgot to calculate the cost of pulling it back down again when they needed it. And right. it was millions was millions of dollars a year that they had to come up with. So that's one possible downside of a cloud if you have a gigantic amount of data up there.
0: So, do, do, so am I to understand then that that all of these cloud services will, it, let's say you choose to discontinue using a product and uh, you say, well, I'm gonna download all of the the data on, on that cloud and no longer use the the service. Does that mean, did, are you charged for that every time you do that?
1: Depends on how much do you have up there. If it's something like Dropbox, you know, no. no. Um, right. But it's like an Amazon web service or a OneDrive and you've got, you know, hundreds of terabytes of data up there. and or some complex web services. It's it's quite incredible that story of how the cloud came about. Essentially, Amazon was kind of the first mover, and um, had the advantage of just having extra capacity. You know, I I take it they just maybe overbuilt at some point, in <clears throat> built too much capacity for their current uh, market demands, and then they said, oh well, let's see if we can sell this space, and. Uh, Amazon Web Services currently—it's an astronomically high fraction of Amazon's profits, like 24%. I think, mm. yeah. So it's a really profitable business.
0: Wow. Well, you know, again, it, it's a fascinating topic. So I, I just want to end kind of on it with the the classic doomsday scenario um, that I I hear people sort of talking about from time to time, and you know that is. What happens if we have a huge magnetic pulse um, and we lose everything? No, you know, society will not go out
1: with a bang. It will go out with a whimper. You know, somebody will just like the fate of the world will depend on someone knowing the password to some system and they'll get it wrong three times and it'll say, (laughs) it'll say, sorry. And that'll be it.
0: Interesting. (laughs) Well, on that note, (laughs) on that happy note, I want to thank you again for agreeing to be on the show. And I hope uh, perhaps we can call you back again in the near future for another episode of For What It's Worth. Our next episode of For What It's Worth will be something completely different. The pandemic has created a once in a lifetime opportunity for change. We see the edges of the tapestry of society as we've known it up to this point beginning to fray. Much of what we considered normal will cease to exist. Change is being driven by necessity rather than simply by choice. We can either accept the changes being thrust upon us or we can take an active role in shaping these changes to create new directions. In the next episode of For What It's Worth, we will interview individuals from across different generations and ask them all a single question. If you could change one thing right now, which you believe would ensure a better world for all concerned, what would it be, and what would be required to make it happen? Please join us for the next episode, If I Were King For What It's Worth.